You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is brought to you in part by our amazing subscribers at Patreon. Join them now at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Like them, you can get early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive bonus content, and more. Our Patreon subscribers help keep us in production, and you can too. It's easy to sign up at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Thank you for your support. The world would look very different without multicellular organisms. Take away the animals, trees, fungi, and life on Earth might be limited to a bunch of algae floating in a pond. Even seaweed would be missing because it too is multicellular. But we really don't know just how multicellular organisms developed from our single-celled ancestors. There's at least 50 different transitions to multicellularity that occurred on Earth. But all of these known transitions happened hundreds of millions of years ago. And we actually don't know that much about the early steps that allows evolution to actually make them more complicated and more interesting than a simple blob of cells. Now, laboratory experiments are shedding light on how single cells might have evolved into organisms made of trillions of cells. Can these experiments tell us how we went from an individual cell somewhere to a frog, a redwood tree, or a human? And what does this process suggest about the evolution of life on other worlds? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. We talk with biologists who watch cells divide and evolve in real time. They've been watching some of them for a long time. One experiment has been running for 35 years. That's 75,000 generations of cells. Also, new insights into how embryos become human beings. After all, each of us began as a single cell. This episode is Going Multicellular. Charles Darwin observed unique traits in finches and tortoises that were the result of millions of years of evolution. But we can watch natural selection unfold in real time. Scientists are studying small organisms that they've left alone to do their evolutionary thing. In doing so, they hope to answer fundamental questions about how individual cells evolve and under what conditions multicellularity emerges. If that hadn't occurred on Earth, no finches or tortoises would grace the Galapagos Islands. These unique laboratory experiments involve common organisms you might find in your kitchen, which is a reminder to always wash your lettuce thoroughly. 
So I was excited to take over the long-term evolution experiment with E. coli because it's one of the, the longest running observations of evolution that we have, and it's open-ended. We don't quite know exactly what's going to happen. Also being studied in another experiment is a microscopic fungus necessary for bread and beer. And so we started 13 years ago with these single-celled yeast, but the longer they evolve in our experiment, the more divergent they become, the, the less they resemble their single-celled ancestors. These scientists are describing two experiments, one looking at the evolution of E. coli bacteria and another at how single-celled yeast evolved into a multicellular organism. We look at these experiments to understand how life unfolded on Earth. As single cells arose before complexity, we begin with the single-cell E. coli experiment playing out in Jeff Barrick's lab at the University of Texas at Austin. It's known as the Long-Term Evolution Experiment. When it began, a dozen eggs cost 79 cents, and this song was top of the charts. Which is fitting, because scientists have been loyal to this experiment since its initiation, when evolutionary biologist Richard Lenski dropped a single E. coli bacterium into each of 12 flasks 35 years ago. E. coli are favorite laboratory organisms because they replicate quickly and are common. In fact, they're in everyone's guts, which is why the growth medium in the flasks were set to the human body temperature of 98.6 Fahrenheit. The 12 individual flasks of E. coli have a common mission. In this experiment, it's, it's very simple. We just say grow fast using these nutrients. There's nothing really fancy. But even in this simple environment, you still see evolution. You still see mutations that are beneficial, that those bacteria that have them replicate more quickly. Dr. Barrick, who was a graduate student in Dr. Lenski's lab and has since taken over the long-term experiment, describes the selection pressure scientists have put the bacteria under since 1988. The experiment progresses by once a day, taking one one-hundredth of the volume, which is a very small amount of the liquid, and moving it into fresh growth medium, the nutrients that are still there. And then we allow that to grow. We shake it at 37 degrees for the rest of the, the 24 hours. And then we passage it again the exact same way. So we are serially diluting it. We're taking a portion of the volume and moving it each day. So one, only one in 100 of the cells randomly gets chosen to continue as well. Okay, so it is random. You're not picking out the ones that are maybe, I don't know, at the top or crawling along the sides or anything like that. You're, you're oh, no, no but I mean, we can talk about interesting experiments other people have done that are not quite to the crawling level. If you're doing this, this selection every day and you and Dr. Lenski, I mean, prior to you, he was doing it. I believe you were working in his lab. That's quite a commitment to this experiment. You have to be there every day, and someone has been there every day for, what, 35 years or so. That's right. Well, I mean, that's, of course, this is science, and really it's a team effort. So there's many talented graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, research technicians who contribute and do come on on the weekends. And while we can pause the experiment sometimes, they often come in through the holidays just to continue things and have as much evolution happen as we can. Well, once again, it sounds like the progress of science owes a lot to the perseverance of graduate students. These E. coli bacteria really have it pretty good. They're treated to fresh nutrients every day. Yeah, that would seem like the ideal life for a bacterium, right? I, I guess they don't need reading matter or, you know, exposure to daytime television. So we have a bunch of flasks and a bunch of bacteria. And the reason this experiment matters is that they're trying to replicate what might have happened on our planet a long time ago. 
Were there predictions going into the experiment, Molly? I mean, an idea of what might happen? They had one prediction, and that was that random mutations would create changes in the flasks early on. But instead what happened is that for years, the activity in the flasks, in these 12 flasks, was identical. The E. coli changed. Uh, They all became larger over time and they replicated faster, but no single flask activity stood out. They all were doing this kind of at the same pace. That's a bit surprising to me. I mean, you would expect change, right? After all, that's the engine that's driven all of evolution. But you're saying that the bacteria in each of these flasks would do their own thing, but that own thing ended up being the same for each of them. That sounds as exciting and unpredictable as, I don't know, a fixed poker game or something. Imagine if the first life on Earth, the first cells on Earth, had remained the same. Yes. And the scientists, too, were wondering whether or not anything would change in these flasks. But it's funny you should use the analogy of a poker game because like a poker game, eventually chance did come along. The activity in one of the flasks changed. And this gives us a sense of how evolution can sometimes make major jumps forward. Seth, want to guess how many years into the experiment that this occurred? Well, uh, it's probably not a couple of billion years because we we wouldn't hear about it. I, I I would say a couple of decades, say 20 years, given the turnover rate of the experiment. Okay, okay. Here's what happened 15 years into the long term experiment. Normally, you look at these flasks and you hold them up to the light and they look like they're a little bit cloudy. And that's how you tell the bacteria have replicated enough to kind of block the light at the end of each 24-hour cycle. And one of the flasks suddenly became much cloudier. What they observed was that the flask was becoming more turbid, which meant more growth. And eventually, we could go in and check the microbes that were there and see that, no, that was not contamination. It was the E. coli that had always been there, but they had now evolved some new mutations that changed them. And the key thing that they did was they accessed a new nutrient, a nutrient that had been in the experiment all along the way. And there's so much of the second nutrient, which is citric acid, the primary nutrient they use each day is the sugar glucose, that once they evolved to access this, they had just a huge advantage. It's kind of like an untapped niche, a new, you know, a new environment to go into that's in the same flask. And so one of the things that we've been studying ever since is that now the flasks are very different. This one did take a different trajectory. In fact, the other 11 flasks to this day, after 35 years of the experiment, still have never accessed this nutrient. And so understanding some of the changes that happened early on and how they determined later evolution is really an interesting question. Wow. Well, okay. So one in a dozen eventually was able to take advantage of this nutrient that was in its environment. That's not very bad odds, if you ask me. I mean, you can imagine the early Earth where you have, you know, millions of living things. And if one in 12, I mean, so for years, nothing happens. And then suddenly, relative to the times involved, some bacteria learn to metabolize the citrate. And that was, of course, in the growth medium all along. But bacteria were sort of ignoring it until a mutation came along. What I find is interesting about this is that Nothing happens, and then something happens. But the truth is, is that it's not really true that nothing is happening, is it, Seth? I mean, these bacteria are dividing, and they are accumulating mutations. But I think what we can assume is that mutations aren't really helping them. They're not helping them take advantage of that growth medium (laughs) or extract any new energy out of it. I mean, it's not as though the bacteria are sitting there static, and that those divisions aren't introducing any new genes. Yeah, well, of course, we've 
sort of defined nothing happening as, you know, just ordinary things happening. I mean, just doing their thing to continue their existence. Well, that we consider nothing happening. It's when something changes that we sort of wake up. Exactly, exactly. And in this case, as you said and you summarized, it was a mutation that allowed these bacteria then to be able to metabolize citrate, and it gave those bacteria an advantage. Well, let's hear what Dr. Barrick says that means in the big picture, both for the bacteria in the flasks and for the evolution of bacteria in the wild outside the lab. The bacteria in one flask are competing against each other because there are probably millions of bacteria in any one flask or tens of thousands. Yeah, you, you get up to kind of hundreds of millions okay. each day and you start out in the, yeah, the millions. Okay, but they're not competing with other flasks, obviously. They're all individual, but they are competing with each other and so if you are a bacterium, and now you can metabolize citrate along with the sugary substance that you've been metabolizing, you get a burst of energy and, and fitness. And then how does that make them, if we think of natural selection, how does that make them more suited for their environment? I mean, their environment's quite limited. It's in a little flask. You can think of it at a broad scale. You can think of evolution uh, of organisms of the biosphere as getting better at extracting energy from the universe in some way, right? And so there was a source of energy in their very small universe, and it, it was not used. And it may take some time, but evolution will often find a way to utilize these new nutrients. You know, other examples are that we've made many man-made chemicals, and the microbes have evolved to break them down to get energy and, and the building blocks they need to produce themselves, right? So that was the potential place for them to evolve to uh, improve their fitness. Now, I wonder if you could put the long-term of the long-term evolution experiment in perspective. That is, you know, 35 years is a significant amount of time for humans, but compared with the timescale of evolution of life on this planet, it's, it's not at all. I mean, that has unfolded over billions of years. So what can we possibly learn in a few decades? Right. So that's where an advantage of working with microbes comes in, that they do replicate quite rapidly. And so we've gotten up to more than 77,000 generations, cell divisions, dividing the bacteria today in these flasks from the ones at the beginning. And if you start thinking about what that is in terms of the generations of lots of other organisms, it stretches into the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years for certain animals, right? And so you, you do get quite a bit of evolution happening, but you're right. You don't see the changes that you can go out and observe between different types of bacteria, you know, some that live in the soil or other things. You're not seeing differences on that scale yet. And just to, to put those timescales in perspective, if you compared it with other organisms, if you compare it with humans, is it looking back a million years or so and comparing us, modern humans, with, say, ancestors of a million years ago or so? I, I think roughly, if you think about the generations, that's correct. I think human evolution is much more complicated and the environment certainly is much more complicated than humans have evolved in over time. But I think that's a, that's a good kind of benchmark. Well, what you're demonstrating here are some very basic principles of evolution, and now we have understood those for a long time. So what are some of the big questions that you and Dr. Lenski have been asking and, and all the other scientists in the lab have been asking along the way? What are you hoping to answer? I think for me, I, I really do like thinking about what makes a certain genome, the way it's structured, more amenable to evolution, and particularly 
more likely to generate beneficial mutations versus deleterious mutations. You can think about their information. There's different ways of organizing that information so that one of these changes in the DNA sequence can lead to new information. And there's kind of this thought that over time, the organisms, the lineages of organisms that are most successful are the ones that have reorganized their, their data, so to speak, in ways that make them better at evolving. Now, now people go in the lab and they synthesize entire genomes of a bacterium, right? So you can, you can do that. It's becoming more accessible. There's a lot of different ways you could make a cell which has the same basic components at the DNA level, but some of them would be better at evolving. And evolution itself has kind of optimized that property over time. The mind really boggles when you think of this happening to organisms, billions of species around the world, or in the early Earth it would be fewer than that, but where there are going to be errors introduced for many different reasons into, into genomes repeatedly, 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 and so you get the sense of the power of, of evolution when you play that out over time. Absolutely. I think this is where the human imagination almost fails, right? The number of organisms, the number of genomes, the number of variations on all of those genomes, and the number of different environments that you have on Earth, right? So there's just so many combinatorial differences that you're only going to ever sample a small amount of that. But the richness on Earth says that, you know, there's so many opportunities for interesting things to happen. And just the the potential is, is incredible. And I, I mean... That's why we get excited as biologists about studying life, like all of these possibilities, I think. Well, finally, Jeff, how do you know when this experiment is over? It is the long-term experiment. How much longer do you think it'll run? I, I'm hoping that I will eventually interest someone who is in my lab or passes through my lab in the next couple of decades, we'll see how long I have, to continue it. Because I, I think because we've studied it so much, it's become, I think, a touchstone just for talking about evolution. It's something that we can easily convey to people. Like you said, the depth of evolutionary time is something that when you think about people doing this experiment every single day and how that's not even getting close, it really makes you think about these big issues that are so hard for us to comprehend in our daily lives, right? So I think even just on that basis, it's worth going, but I think interesting things are bound to happen as well. Well, Jeff Barrick, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, it's been really nice. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Jeff Barrick is a molecular scientist at the University of Texas at Austin, where his lab oversees the long-term evolution experiment that's been going on since 1988. 1988, Molly, I mean, that sounds like a long time, but compared to you know the timescales of evolution on Earth, it's pretty darn short. So to be honest, I'm, I'm astounded that in that relatively short period of time, things are happening. Evolution is stepping in. These cells are not static. They're not just sitting there. They're dividing, and the dividing is an act of creation and recreation over and over, and it may introduce changes. You may get diversity then. Exactly. So in fact, uh, all the flora and fauna on this planet are due to mistakes, if you will. Well, things are about to get more complex. In Dr. Barrick's experiment, as we heard, they were not selecting for particular traits among these bacteria, but that's not the case in Will Radcliffe's lab, where scientists put selection pressure on yeast cells. We, in fact, select upon them the way that somebody breeding animals or plants would select upon their organisms. We're doing directed evolution. We select upon them to have bigger, tougher bodies. 
So we do that with a very simple screen where when we come in to feed them, we actually put them on the bench and let them sink through liquid media. And the things which sink fastest are in fact the things with the biggest, densest bodies. Find out what happens next to those muscular yeast as scientists witness the rise of complexity in the lab and an hypothesis for what it means for life elsewhere in the universe. From one to many, we are going multicellular on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Seth, what fraction of habitable planets do you think have multicellular life? Uh, I'd say 5%. And what fraction of those life forms do you think would support big picture science? Well, we haven't heard from too many so far, but all the intelligent ones definitely would. After all, it's easy to donate to big picture science at patreon.com slash big picture science. Easy is the word, and you can easily join us on Patreon and give a small monthly donation to help keep us in production. Plus, you can hear episodes early, that is, before the podcast is generally released, and you don't have to hear any ads. Any amount helps. And at the $5 a month level, you'll get access to exclusive bonus material, like my recent conversation with our assistant producer, Brian Edwards, about gravitational waves. Kind of a heavy subject. So please join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and get early access to ad-free episodes and more. We appreciate your support. Thank you very much. We use it for fermentation and bread making, but could yeast also be key to helping us understand how complex life arose on Earth? We heard how single-celled bacterial evolution can suddenly take off, prompting one group to diverge dramatically from others, but those bacteria remained as individual cells, and perhaps we should be thankful that they didn't evolve into one massive marauding E. coli bacterium. Beware of the blob! The first bona fide multicellular organisms were the cyanobacteria that appeared about 2 billion years ago. But what did it take to prompt cells to first band together to form a multicellular organism, a leap that eventually allowed for the emergence of squid and butterflies and oak trees and us? Plants evolved from a different single-celled ancestor from animals, which are different from fungi, which are different from seaweeds. And there's in fact many more. There's at least 50 different transitions to multicellularity that occurred on Earth. But all of these known transitions happened hundreds of millions of years ago. 
And we actually don't know that much about the early steps and how single cell organisms form groups of cells and how those groups become Darwinian entities that can reproduce, that have a life cycle, that allows evolution to actually make them more complicated and more interesting than a simple blob of cells. Well, answers may be forthcoming from a Georgia Tech lab where yeast cells have been fighting for survival. The long-term experiment is like the one at the University of Texas, but with a new element. The cells have been nudged toward multicellularity through directed evolution. Doing the directing is evolutionary biologist Will Radcliffe and his team at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And they've been watching Baker's yeast cells reproduce for 3,000 generations. They are now a far cry from their single-celled ancestors. And we're not going to leave you in suspense about what happened. The yeast cells join together to form complex organisms that can be seen with the naked eye. And we did this directed evolution experiment, and from that we got these small, simple, multicellular yeast evolving, which have this sort of fractal tree-like morphology, which in three dimensions looks sort of like a snowflake. Working in Minnesota in December at the time, the name snowflake yeast easily came to mind. And these yeast clumps are different from their freewheeling and delicate single-celled ancestors. Along the way, as they evolved to hang on to one another, these clusters also became kind of bulky and tough. Let's find out how the team went from one to many. Okay, Will, how long have you been keeping tabs on these once microscopic fungi? <laughs> I've been working on this for 13 years. And have the cells been dividing all that time? No, in fact, there's been several different starts and stops to the experiment, and it took us almost five years to figure out the right recipe to allow for our yeast to undergo this process of multicellular evolution and, and keep becoming more interesting and more multicellular and more complex. Roughly, how many cells were involved here? Well, every day, each of our populations has about a billion cells in it, and we have 15 of these populations that are evolving. And they reproduce at a tempo which is... It's pretty fast. About every 90 minutes, uh, every cell divides. My gosh. So you, you don't have 24-hour watch on these cells, I assume. Uh, you just come back the next morning and see what the population is or something? Yeah, every single day. At the same time of day, we transfer them to fresh media. We give them fresh resources, and we throw away about 97% uh, of the population. And just the lucky few get through and get to divide and, and reproduce and fill up their tubes. You forced me to ask, what, what is lucky about them? Well, uh, the evolution of multicellularity, so we're thinking about things like plants and animals and fungi and seaweed. Uh, these are things which evolved from single cell ancestors in the past. And these different modes of multicellular nature, uh, they evolved for different, quite different reasons, but they all stem from benefits of, of forming a group of cells and having a body. And so uh, what's lucky in our yeast is that we, in fact, select upon them the way that somebody breeding animals or plants would select upon their organisms. We're doing directed evolution. We select upon them to have bigger, tougher bodies. So, so we do that uh, with a very simple screen where when we come in to feed them, we actually put them on the bench and let them sink through liquid media. And the things which sink fastest are, in fact, the things with the biggest, densest bodies. It's not just, you know, crossing a certain line. Getting to the bottom of the test tube doesn't ensure survival. You have to be the first to cross the line. So there's this constant arms race for them to figure out how to get bigger than the others, but also how to grow faster because first there's 24 hours of competition for sugar and they have to reproduce. If they don't leave at least 10 offspring every day, they're going to get diluted away to zero and then poured down the drain. It sounds like you're, you're doing directed evolution on these yeast. Aren't you afraid you're going to end up with one yeast cell that's, you know, the size of a house? 
Uh, that would be actually very interesting if that happened <laughs> from a scientific perspective. Uh, but no, I, I'm not too worried that the individual cells will get much bigger than they already are. Uh, there are constraints on how big a cell can become. Okay, it sounds to me like the, the real problem eventually is that, you know, their surface area is going up as the square of the diameter, uh, but, uh, you know, the insides, the, the mm -hmm. volume is going up as the cube. And, of course, eventually those, those curves cross, I suppose, and you can't make a viable cell anymore. That is a fascinating insight. Yeah, that is actually one of the fundamental constraints of multicellularity. If you're building a big body, how do you get resources to the inside? You know, multicellular organisms that have been around on Earth for millions of years have evolved circulatory systems or body plans that have a very high surface area to volume ratio, something that's, that's actually just really, uh, really thin. It turns out, this is unpublished research, but it turns out that our yeast are actually able to move liquid through their bodies, kind of like a sea sponge at very high rates. And they are able to overcome diffusion limitations so that they don't run out of food on the inside, even while growing to very large length scales. I don't think we care about multicellular organisms because they form groups of cells. We care about them because they are more complex than their single-celled ancestors. And so it's this process of how complexity gets baked in through this process of, of evolution that's something which, which we haven't really been able to study in nature because it happened so long ago and so we're kind of recreating these early steps in the laboratory to understand how simple groups of cells arise in evolution and how those groups can evolve to become more complex. Yeah. When you say it's baked in, I mean, you're using baker's yeast, of course, it's baked <laughs> in. I, but, 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 Will, really, I mean, you know, I'm not a biologist. If I think of multicellularity, I think, okay, you get a bunch of single cells and you stuff mm -hmm. them all together on a Petri dish and, you know, some of them will stick to others. I mean, is this a big deal? That's a great question. Getting groups of cells is not really a big deal, I'd say. That, that happens in nature all the time. It happens when you leave your toothbrush out at night, I'm sure. It happens in the pipes in your kitchen. Biofilms are very common in nature. But biofilms are just simple groups of cells. Those are actually quite different from multicellular organisms, which would be groups that actually gain group-level adaptations where the whole is greater than the sum of their parts, where cells have interfunctionality and groups have traits that single cells don't have. And so as we see those things arising in the process of evolution in our system, I think we are, it is kind of a big deal because we're watching these groups of cells become indivisible, single organisms that contain multiple cells that are parts of that organism. The benefits of being multicellular stem from benefits of size. Simple multicellular organisms can reap rewards from increased cellular metabolism and cooperation. They can move better as a group and they can survive stressful environments in ways that single cells can't. So, Will, was there a point during uh, the course of your experiment when you could point to, you know, somebody walking through the halls and say, look at this, Bob, they're multicellular. They're not just glommed onto one another because they're sticky on the outside. They're actually multicellular. That's a wonderful question. And I, I don't know if there is a single clear tipping point, um, but rather what we see is a series of changes that make them more and more integrated and organismal. So we start out with just these dumb clumps of cells where there's no cellular specialization. They don't form very strong bodies. In fact, they're hundreds of times weaker than gelatin. <laughs> they're in fact pretty bad at even forming groups of cells. And over thousands of generations of evolution, they evolve to form groups that are remarkably physically tough. They become as tough and strong as wood. 
And really what we're investigating now is, are two things that are very relevant to your question. Uh, the first is how cells specialize in different roles with different development. And the other thing that we're looking at is if single cells that break off from this group can actually survive and, and, and live again as single cells, or if they're kind of stuck in a multicellular lifestyle. You know, if you were to sort of scrape some cells from your arm and they landed on the soil, they wouldn't become little amoebae, which, you know, live in the soil and eventually re-aggregate into a person or something like, they just die. And that's a transition. That's a, that's a shift from being something where the cells are, are capable of free living to being something where they're really stuck being as part of a multicellular organism. Well, finally then, Will, given that the, you know, the big transitions here and going multicellular all happened a long, long time ago, are there, you know, some very fundamental problems about this particular mechanism that you know, we don't understand and you know, may not understand for a long time, or is it fairly straightforward? No, no, there are definitely large gaps in our knowledge that we are still trying to understand. We have a pretty great understanding of how modern, you know, existing multicellular organisms work. But what we don't really understand is how they got to that point, because we have genes that coordinate pattern formation and allow embryos to undergo specific developmental processes. And those are things which evolved in the context of multicellularity. They didn't just magically appear in a single cell organism one day. And we don't really understand how those processes occur. And the kind of experiments that we do in our laboratory allow us to understand how these simple groups of cells can actually evolve the kinds of behaviors and traits that more resemble modern multicellular life. However, I will caution that it doesn't explain how existing multicellular organisms came to be. The way that we're doing it in our laboratory is just one possible solution to the evolution of multicellularity. And in fact, even if we had perfect knowledge of how animals evolved, that wouldn't explain how plants evolved because they've done it independently. They've done it utilizing different genetic pathways. And so it's a very similar thing in our lab. The way that snowflake yeast evolved multicellularity teaches us something fundamental about how multicellularity can evolve, but it doesn't explain how it did evolve. Will Radcliffe, thanks so very much for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Will Radcliffe is an evolutionary biologist at the Georgia Institute of Technology and director of its Quantitative Biosciences PhD program. Well, Molly, you know, this uh, experiment really kind of impresses me because the fact that you could, in the lab, kind of simulate what happens over, I don't know, millions of years of evolution and, and, and actually learn something. It always seemed to me that, you know, biology is kind of slow to change and, and we could really never understand how it happened. But that seems not to be the case. Well, here's a big picture question. If the transition of single-celled organisms to multicellular life was obviously essential to the eventual development of plants and animals we see all around us, is that transition unique? In other words, if life emerged on other worlds, would it also evolve to become multicellular? Would that be easy to do? Would that be common? Hello, this is Dr. Joseph L. Graves, Jr. I am the Mackenzie Scott Endowed Professor of Biology at North Carolina A&T State University. The question of easy and the question of certainty are not really the same thing. And so basically what you're asking is this sort of fundamental question called the evolvability. In other words, for a specific trait, you know, how difficult is it for that trait to evolve? Now, multicellularity is not tremendously difficult to evolve. So I would say anytime you re replay the tape of life, as Gould talked about in his wonderful life, 
I'm pretty sure that multicellularity will evolve. But I'm also sure, based upon what we've seen, based upon life on this planet, that unicellularity will always be the rule, simply because it's easy to evolve relatively compared to multicellularity. So most things will always be unicellular. Well, what you're saying there is that if we somehow could send a rocket to some distant world that, you know, had liquid oceans and stuff like that, an atmosphere that was conducive to life, whatever kind of life it might be, that you would find single-celled organisms, that life wouldn't begin as something the size of a meter stick or anything like that. It would be small and it would be single-celled. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. I mean, all the astrobiologists I know are microbiologists because that's the most likely form of life you're going to find out there in the universe. But again, having single cellular forms would eventually lead to multicellular forms. That I'm absolutely sure of. What multicellularity allows is for the specialization of cell types, which allow for a more efficient reproduction of the genetic code. So I would bet my reputation that if we were to find a planet with living things on it, that there will be a dominance of unicellular forms, but that there will also be multicellular complex organisms on that planet, of course, depending upon when life on that planet first evolved. So this is good news from my point of view, Joe, because what you're saying is, okay, if you can get life started, if you can you know, produce the equivalent of an amoeba or a paramecium or something like that, then the chances are essentially 100% that eventually you will get complex life and, you know, the kind of... Uh, aliens that would hold up their side of the conversation. It sounds like complexity is not a problem. No, I don't think complexity is a problem at all. It is simply a question of probability. And, and granted, if we talk about intelligent life forms, then we're going down a level of much lower probabilities for, for a number of reasons. Um, you can imagine that for a multicellular organism, its probability of survival at any time is challenged relative to single-celled organisms. And in part, part of that problem is single-celled organisms and viruses themselves, which attack larger multicellular organisms. And so there are gonna be similar characteristics that a multicellular organism would have to have to be able to make it to the point of where it had intelligence. Well, Joe, when I think about the possibility of life on other worlds, you know, I'm thinking about the possibility that it would ever get started. It seems to me the hard part is actually the first cell right, the one that has those properties you've described of being able to faithfully reproduce itself and so forth, and that mutations will happen to it, whatever, okay, so that you set up evolution. And once you do that, all the rest is, you know, straightforward from that first cell to, you know, my neighbors. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it's the question of becoming a self-replicating system. To me, that's the difficult part of the evolution of life, yeah. is going through what we call, you know, prebiotic synthesis so that you get a self-replicating system. But again, given the fact that it has happened on Earth, even if you say the probability is extremely low, let's say your probability of this happening is one in a trillion, okay? Well, there are 10 to the 24 stars out there. So that means it must have happened at least 10 to the ninth times. So even if you give the possibility for the evolution of the first self-replicating system as being extremely low, as in one in a trillion. But even then, when you consider not just the number of stars out there, but the number of chemical reactions that occur that allow for that first replicating system to come into existence, then I say again, the probability is one, that there are definitely living things 
in the universe besides this planet and that they have undergone their own evolutionary trajectories. But many of the evolvability pathways are not that unique. Now, what kinds of multicellular organisms, you know, take dominance on that planet based upon, you know, external factors that we can't predict? We can't predict that. But multicellularity, definitely. Well, Joseph Graves, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me and and putting up with my, you know, how shall I say, rampant speculations. (laughs) Speculations are some of the most interesting aspects of science. Joseph Graves is an evolutionary biologist and geneticist at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, and he is the author of A Voice in the Wilderness. A pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems. There's more to say about the emergence of complexity. Consider that all creatures begin life as a single cell. It's remarkable that, you know, something so small can give rise to every one of us, every whale, every insect, no matter what organism, they all started out in that exact same way. Next, how countless divisions add up to a single animal. We are going multicellular on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Being a multicellular yeast is one thing, but even a highly evolved clump of yeast cells can't climb a tree, dive into the ocean, or gallop across the savanna, and yet... Animals on this planet, orangutans, osprey, cheetahs, they exhibit mind-boggling complexity in individual behavior and form. There are animals with beaks and tails and scales and horns and hairless apes that write operas and build spacecraft, all different but all beginning life as a single embryonic cell. And unfolding over those first few weeks after fertilization, a complicated process called embryogenesis turns that single embryonic cell, a zygote, into an organism with an intricate anatomy. It's then that cells differentiate to create a heart or the lining of a stomach. So really one of the great mysteries of biology is how exactly they do that. How do we go from one cell to two to four to eight and so on and so forth to the 10 trillion cells that make up our bodies and all the different tissues and organs that comprise them. Ben Stanger explores this mystery in his book, From One Cell, A Journey into Life's Origins and the Future of Medicine. Dr. Stanger is a cancer researcher and a professor of medicine and developmental biology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he tells us what we know and still don't know about this remarkable process. Okay, Ben, first, 
What strikes me is that a lot of information has to be packed into a tiny space, that is, that single cell, for the cell to know whether to create a red-bellied woodpecker or human being or whatever. That one cell carries all the instructions for making, for making every single tissue, an eyeball, a kidney, muscle, etc. It's all packed in there. And what we've learned over the last century is a little bit about how all of those different cell types come about. It's called differentiation. So you, you start with this embryonic cell, then it divides, and it eventually produces the entire organism. So how many times does that have to dis- divide to, to make a couple of trillion cells? I mean, that sounds like it would take a while. You know, so if you do the math, that's one to two to four to eight and so on and so forth. So if everything were equal, that would be about 40 divisions or so. I, I can't remember exactly, but 40 or so divisions. But it's actually not as simple as that because there's a lot of cell death along the way. So some cells have to divide more to compensate for um, cells that are dying. And obviously certain tissues have to be bigger than other tissues. So after a certain point in development, it gets a little bit unequal, but lots of divisions, let's say. It's pretty amazing that it, that it works out. Yeah. All right. They, you know, it's not just that they divide, of course, but they also have the instructions and the ability to form into things like your liver or th- something like that. You know, where, where is that information encoded? How do they know how to make a liver? Yeah, it's really kind of incredible because the instructions are all in that cell, but they're instructions to make many different types of tissues. So this has been a big problem for a long time. So let's let's take a step back and look at that first cell and its offspring to two to four to eight and so on and so forth. In those very early cell divisions, all of those cells can really become anything. They're what we call totipotent. But something happens as you're getting onto 100 cells or 200 cells where the cells start to specialize, where they start to gain instructions for, I'm going to become a lung cell, I'm going to become a pancreatic cell, and so on and so forth. So how does that come about? Well, that is a matter of gene regulation, that some genes are on in certain cells and other genes are on in other cells, and that defines how the cells are behaving. So how does that come about? How do cells know which genes to turn on? And that all comes about through cell communication. Cells from the earliest stages of development are talking to each other and reaching some kind of agreement. Okay, you go there and I'll go here. Okay, you become this and I'll become that. So even though they all have the same instructions, they start very subtly having these conversations that take them in different directions. And that ultimately results in different patterns of gene expression in different cells. So, Ben, when you describe how a single cell goes multicellular, what would you say is the most fraught, great dramatic tension moment in that process? That is great. So there are so many things that have to go right during embryonic development. Cells have to divide. They have to pass along copies of their DNA to their daughter cells. They have to differentiate. They have to go to the right place. There's one particular time that is particularly dramatic during all this process. There's a biologist, Lewis Wolpert, he said, the most important moment in your life is not birth or marriage, it's gastrulation. And gastrulation is this step when the embryo has maybe a few hundred or a few thousand cells when that process of specialization first really begins. And they're being assigned to different general parts of the body. 
Gastrulation is dramatic because there's a lot of movement. Cells actually almost get sucked into the interior of the embryo. And as they pass through, it's sort of like a rite of passage and they come out with a much better idea of what they're going to become. Yeah, gastrulation, is that where they sort of sort into those that are going to be interior and those that are going to be exterior? More or less. Gastrulation involves the division of the embryo into three different layers of cells called the ectoderm, the mesoderm, and the endoderm. Some of those will give rise to, say, the gut and the internal organs. Some will give rise to the skin and the brain. And the third layer will give rise to the muscle and the bone of the body. So, Ben, what are the big picture questions in human development? I mean, many of the studies that we do are done on other animals. And can we safely assume that if we understand how uh, these processes work in frogs, do we understand how they work in humans? So a French biologist named Jacques Monod once said that everything that is true of E. coli is true of the elephant. And what he meant by that was that at the cellular level, all organisms use the same basic machinery. But that kind of falls apart when it comes to development because, of course, E. coli are single cells and elephants and all of us are multicellular organisms. So to really understand how development works, we need to uh, study animals like ourselves. I would say that one of the big questions that still remains in developmental biology is an area called morphogenesis. And what morphogenesis describes is how organs come together in three-dimensional space. We talked about differentiation. You need different types of cells, but how those cells come together to make a functioning organ is still quite a mystery. All right, so we still don't know how you make three-dimensional organs with the information in a single cell. What do we know? What are the steps? Do we understand any of it? Yeah, good question. So organs work because different types of cells are present in a certain organizational structure. And so, yes, of course, a cell is a three-dimensional entity, but for an organ to work, let's take the kidney, for example. The kidney is made up of these extremely long tubules. And those tubules have to run first in this direction and then in that direction. And there have to be cells neighboring those tubules to absorb water and to regulate your salt concentration. And if things are, if the different cells and the different structures in that organ are not organized relative to each other in the correct three-dimensional space, then you don't have an organ. You just have a bunch of cells. What about cancer? You've written about cancer that it's kind of an evil twin of an embryo. What, what did you mean by that? Well, cancers do many of the same things that embryos normally do. They grow, the cells proliferate, there's lots of cell-cell communication. So all of the things that cancer cells do are really things that happen during normal embryogenesis. It's just that cancers do it in a very disorganized fashion. So think about an embryo going from one cell to trillions of cells. There's an immense amount of growth. And of course, the very definition of cancer is lots and lots of cell division and cell growth. Many people are surprised to learn that a cancer is not just made up of the cancerous cells. A tumor is a mixture of the mutated abnormal cancer cells and lots and lots of normal cells that the cancer has recruited to serve its own purpose. And that all occurs through cell-cell communication. The cancer cell telling, for example, a blood vessel, come here 
so you can supply me with all the goodies that I need to be able to grow. So those are principles and molecules, the specific molecules involved in cancer that are really just borrowed from embryonic development. So it sounds to me like uh, we should continue to support research into embryonic development because understanding that might make a big difference in the treatment of cancer eventually. Absolutely. We learn uh, a, a ton uh, about cancer from our knowledge of development, and it goes both ways. Many of the drugs that we use right now in cancer therapy are targeting proteins whose genes were first elucidated through studies in model organisms of development. I have to say that, you know, these, this process of making multicellular critters sounds complicated. It sounds fraught. Do we understand this to the point of being able to, you know, manipulate it? Not even close. <laughs> we, we understand the genes or some of the genes that get turned on and turned off as differentiation occurs. And so we can perturb the system in certain ways to take a cell in one direction or another direction. Um, that's something that we uh, do both in tissue culture in the laboratory, where we can take cells that resemble the very early embryonic cells, what are called embryonic stem cells, and redirect them in certain ways. And we can also do it to some extent in model organisms, in animals such as mice, where we can alter which genes are on and which genes are off and see what the effects are. But big yeah. picture, no, we really don't know ultimately how an animal comes together to be formed. Ben Stanger, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Ben Stanger is a cancer researcher, professor of medicine and developmental biology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is the author of From One Cell, A Journey into Life's Origins and the Future of Medicine. So Seth, what do you, what do you see as the big picture here? Well, look, we know that, you know, life, which is very, very complex when you look at it today, it all began with a single cell. And the, you know, the overarching question here is how do you go from a single cell to something very complex like a tree or an elephant, right? And it involves cells becoming specialized and organizing themselves. And, uh, you know, there are people working on it, but it's still, still mysterious in many ways. This show would not be possible without complex help from senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that examines how life evolved from a single cell is called Going Multicellular. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. 
The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.